you have your copy of scripture, go ahead and turn to Colossians chapter 1. This is our second sermon in the book of Colossians, and this morning we are in Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. I know, as usual, you're going to find it helpful to have your Bible open and reading along with me, Colossians 1, verses 9 to 14. And before we look at God's word, let's again go to him praying for his blessing and asking him to strengthen um, both the one that preaches and those who hear his word this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks, that you are not a God who is silent, that we do not have to wait for audible voices, we do not have to wait for dreams or, or revelations, for you have spoken to us clearly in your word, both the Old and the New Testament. We thank you that you are the God of redemption, the God who reveals the living word, Jesus Christ, in the written word. And Lord Jesus, we would come this morning to be changed. We come not to have our ears tickled, not to have our minds simply enlarged with knowledge. We come that we might grow in the knowledge of you in the inner man, that we might be strengthened with all might according to your glorious power. We come that we may be drawn into communion with each member of the Godhead. Father, we come and we come because we cannot do this ourselves. We come asking because, Lord, we have nothing. We are like the man who has no bread to give his friend at midnight. And so we come and we ask that you would open the windows of heaven and you would pour out such a blessing in the preaching and the hearing of the word that we would be changed forever. We pray, Father, that you would remove from us all distractions. We pray that you would remove from us all burdens and cares. Pray that all we would see is Christ in His glory, in His exalted glory in which He now sits at Your right hand. Father, we pray, we pray that You would send Your Spirit to us this morning to enlighten us in the knowledge of Christ. For we ask these things in Jesus' name and for His name's sake. Amen. Colossians 1, beginning in verse 9. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, there's a lot that I don't know about all of you. There's a lot that I don't know about what happens in your homes, what happens behind closed doors, what happens when you get up in the morning and you go to work, what happens when you come home at night and sit down. But there is one thing that I know about you very well. There's one thing I know about all of us, and that is that I know that all of us are in a constant state of desire. All of us are in a constant state of desire. All of us are constantly seeking satisfaction. We may seek it in 
pleasures or comforts. We may seek it in food. We may seek it in social status or acceptance. We may seek it in sexual pleasure. We may seek it in money. We may seek it in any number of ways. But all of us, at every given moment of our waking hours, are constantly desiring something. God has so built us, has so created us, that in our souls we have an insatiable desire to be satisfied, to be filled with something. I don't know if it's true about John D. Rockefeller, but the saying when he was asked how much money is enough money, and he said, just a little more, just a little more. Whether that's true or not, whether he actually said that or not, that is very true about the lives of each one sitting here this morning, including myself. We are all seeking for just a little more. You know, Thomas Chalmers, a Scottish a theologian from the 19th century wrote a very famous sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And Chalmers in this sermon tells the story about a little boy who, when he's a boy, likes boyish pleasures. He spends his time running after things, hoping to find satisfaction in toys and in games. And when he becomes a man, he trades off those childish desires for something more manly, the pursuit of money. And when he attains to enough money and he becomes discontent, not being satisfied with that, he then moves on and he seeks He seeks to be satisfied by power and influence. And one step along the way, from boyhood to manhood, from being a little girl to being a grown woman, we all are constantly desiring something. And Chalmers will say in that sermon, the only way to actually be satisfied, the only way to actually find fulfillment is to find it in the expulsive power of a new affection, to have your heart transformed by the grace of God, to find in Jesus Christ the unsearchable riches, to find him to be an all-satisfying well of living water. Well, I tell you that because the Apostle Paul here, in the second part of his prayer for the Colossians, for a people he's never met, for a people he's never seen face-to-face, from a people that he's only heard about, from a fellow minister named Epaphras, in his second part of his prayer, Paul is praying for more. Paul is praying that the Colossians would know more of God, that they would know more of the power of God, that they would have more of the joy of God, that they would be more thankful to God for what he has done. Paul is praying that they would know more. Paul understands a little knowledge of God the beginnings of the Christian life, the beginnings of understanding God's word and knowing him is not sufficient, that God never intended you to have a mere basic knowledge of him. Some people will often say, what's the least that somebody has to know to be saved? What's the least? It's a fair enough question. What's the absolute least I need to know to be saved? And J. Gretchen Machen responded by saying, that's the wrong question. The question we ought to ask is, what is the most I can know about God? How much can I know God through his word? How much can I be filled with him? Not, what is the least? And so Paul, in the second part of this prayer, is going to pray these four things. As he prays for more for the Colossians, he's going to pray first that they would have more growth in the knowledge of God. Then he's going to pray that they would have more experience of the power of God. Then he's going to pray that they would have more patience and joy in God in the midst of affliction. And finally, he's going to pray that they would be more thankful to God for what he's accomplished in Christ. Well, notice there in verse 9, Paul again is still in the midst of this prayer. He has jumped into a prayer at the beginning of this letter. He has said, we thank God always since we heard of your faith and your love. Notice again, Paul doesn't commend the Colossians for anything. He doesn't say, way to go, good for you, you believe, that's great. 
He doesn't say, you've exhibited faith and love. That's, that's really great. Look how gifted you are. He praises God. He thanks God for what God has done in the Colossians. And then he prays that God would give them more. I think it's also interesting to note that Paul doesn't go praying when times get bad. That's usually when we pray. Things get hard. Things get difficult. We have conflict with someone. We have conflict with our wife. Someone gets sick. Uh, someone needs a job. Things are difficult. We need to pray. Paul prays when times are good. Paul prays when he sees God working. Paul prays when he sees God doing something great. He turns not to those in whom God is doing something, but he turns to the God that is doing it in them. And that's a very important point for us because I believe that unless we are in the practice of praying to the Lord when he is doing good things in our lives, we will fail. We will fail to actually trust him the way we are when the hard times come. I think Paul's going to say something of that in this passage. But notice that he says there in verse 9, and so... From the day we heard it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Interesting, Paul's not praying alone. He's praying with Timothy. He's written to the Colossians. He said he's in prison. Timothy's there with him. Timothy's seeing him write the letter to the Colossians. And they must have, at some point, put down what they were writing on, and they started praying. They took time to pray together for a church they had never met. They took time to pray for believers that had the common faith and the common working of God in them. And he says, And so since the day we heard it, we did not cease to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, if you read the first eight verses of this book, you would see that Paul has set out everything God has already done for the saints. Given them faith in Christ, love for the saints, hope of heaven, fruit-bearing through the gospel since the day they heard the grace of God and truth. They are saints. They have received grace and peace. And Paul doesn't say, so just rest in that. He doesn't say, just rest in that. Paul actually is like the pastor that you never wanted who has high expectations in the Lord for growth. He says, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. They had received the knowledge of his will. They had believed on Jesus. They had received the gospel. That gospel had borne fruit in them. And now Paul is saying, there has to be more. There's more. There's more. Paul is, in the words of Sinclair Ferguson, the pastor that everyone who wants to grow loves and the pastor that everyone who doesn't want to grow can't stand. Paul is the pastor that every Christian that wants to grow loves because he's always prodding on more. I'm praying for more. I'm praying that you'll be filled. I'm praying that you'll know God more. I'm praying that you'll have a greater interest. I'm praying that you will thrive. And the person that doesn't want to grow is irritated by that very beautiful prayer of Paul fulfilling. And notice what Paul prays for specifically. He prays for the knowledge of his will. Now, I don't think that Paul is praying here for the Colossians and saying, I pray that They'll know whether this is the job to take. I don't think he's praying uh, that, that you would know what college to go to or whether you should sell your house tomorrow. When he says the knowledge of God's will, I don't think he means that specific will of the Lord, that secret will, as it were, that we talk about. I think he's talking about the revealed will of God, the scriptural will of God, what God has said about Jesus in the Bible. And what he's saying is that you would grow in the knowledge of that will, not just intellectually. Yes, intellectually. Yes, knowing God's word. Yes, knowing it carefully. You know, 
one thing I mourn over in my own life and that I, I mourn over in the lives of so many Christians that I see is that they really don't care about knowing God's word more deeply. Know all about sports statistics, business principles, everything under the sun. But there are very few Christians, very few Christians. I don't think this is an overstatement. I think there are very few Christians that have a hunger to know God's word deeply and passionately. I would ask you this morning, how much do you read God's word? How much every day do you spend in the word of God? How much do you wake up in the morning and say, I know I've got a full day. I know I have a litany of things to do, but I'm going to grow in the knowledge of God's will today. And coming and maybe reading for five minutes or ten minutes or an hour. I'm not telling you you have to read a certain amount of time. How much does your life reflect a desire for growth in the knowledge of God's will through a reading and praying through of his word. Paul wants that for believers. God wants that. And notice, not just a knowledge, not just a mere intellectual knowledge, but he says a knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That there is a a spirit-wrought work in the heart of sinners. That the hearts and the minds of the redeemed would be enlarged, would be filled. There's a beautiful, beautiful way that God speaks about Solomon. Solomon prayed for wisdom. He didn't ask for long life. He didn't ask for riches. He didn't ask for power. He asked for wisdom. And God says he enlarged his heart as the sand on the seashore in size. That God gave Solomon largeness of heart as the sand on the seashore. That's what Paul is praying for, that God would cause you to grow in the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding that your spiritual emotions for God, your spiritual knowledge of God, your spiritual desires for God, your spiritual desire to walk worthy of God, that your heart would be enlarged, that all of you, mind, emotion, heart, will, you know, it's interesting, we often separate all those. There are many Christians who have a church that is emotionally driven, driven through music, driven through emotions, driven through entertainment. There are other churches, it's all intellect. There are other churches, it seems to be all ethics. God says we are to love him with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, and all our strength. That is the totality of who we are. And so Paul is praying that believers would grow in the knowledge of God's will, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And that is really... The most important thing, you know, if you prayed anything for me, I would ask that you would pray that for me. As your pastor, I would ask that you pray that for me. Let me actually read to you a quote from a a French reformer named Jean Daae. He says, During the course of this life, the progress of a Christian is never so great that the prayers of his brethren for him are unnecessary. When he is most advanced, the enemy makes most attempts and lies most in ambush for him. The nearer he is to the crown, the more need he has of divine assistance. Now, we can apply that to everyone that we know in the church. The most advanced saint that you know may be in the greatest need for this prayer today and every time that you remember them in prayer. And there's a beautiful, there's a beautiful relationship here where Paul is essentially saying we need to be praying these things for one another. They needed Paul to pray that. Paul was looking to God. Notice Paul doesn't actually tell them to do anything. Paul hasn't told them to have a quiet time like I just did. 
Paul actually hasn't told them anything. Paul hasn't said, you need to do this and this and this and this so that you're filled. No, he prays that God will fill them. That's a very significant point. He looks to the one who alone can fill them, the one who alone can actually do that. It's actually in vain to read your Bible. It's actually in vain to pray if God is not at work in your soul. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. You could read the Bible till you're blue in the face and nothing happened to you spiritually. And so Paul teaches us to pray for one another and to pray to God so that he fills from outside of us everything that we need that is revealed in Scripture about Christ is outside of us and God must work it in us. He must work it down into the fabric of our being. And what that does is that keeps us dependent on him. I am personally glad that we do not have a God who said, here's everything you need, now get to work. I am thankful that we have a God that is constantly saying, call on me, seek me, pray to me, ask of me, seek, knock, it will be given to you. I am thankful we have a God who is calling us to constantly pray for one another, for filling of the knowledge of his will. Well, secondly, notice that Paul then prays in relationship, in verse 10, for more of the power of God, the experience of more power. In verse 10 he says, so as to walk worthy in a manner of the Lord, fully pleasing him, bearing fruit in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, that you may be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy. That it's not sufficient just to have the knowledge of God's will. It's not sufficient just to know more about God, but that we need the power of God. Now, how much power, how much power does God offer to you? Well, Paul says in Ephesians, in the parallel prayer, that the same power that he worked in raising Jesus from the dead, he works in those who believe. Now, I don't know how much power it takes to raise a dead guy but I assume a whole lot of power to raise somebody from the dead. The same power that the three persons of the God had used in raising Jesus from the dead, he says, he works in you who believe. And Paul prays there. Notice, he prays that you would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. We need power. We need something outside of ourselves. Have you ever, have you ever just found yourself helpless spiritually? I almost on a weekly basis find myself helpless spiritually. I think that's a good thing. Because Paul is saying the power is not in yourself. The power comes from God. It causes us to pray that he would strengthen us, that he would give us power, that he would strengthen us in the inner man, that he would enable us to march forward in all the things that he calls us to. You know, complacency is an enemy of the gospel. Complacency is an enemy of the gospel. God did not give a powerful gospel to create a church that is complacent spiritually. And notice that Paul tells us back in verse 6, as I said last week, that it's the same gospel, it's the same gospel that causes the fruit to be born. The power is in the message of Christ crucified and risen. The power is in the message of what he did for us. The power is in something very foolish. The power is in a foolish message. What I'm doing right here is foolish. A monologue to people, some of whom I don't even know, about a guy who died and rose again according to a book 2,000 years ago is foolish. But God says... 
that that is his power unto salvation and that as we pray down the divine blessing, as we pray down his power as that gospel goes out, that he strengthens us in the inner man, that he gives us the strength we need to endure. There are many, many, many times in the Christian life that, that I've hit a wall where I've wanted to pack it up. I don't know. If you're a Christian, I assume that's true for you too. There have been times where I hit a wall in my ministry. I hit a wall in my desire to grow spiritually. And instead of packing it up, I fall on my face and I say, Oh God, strengthen me. Strengthen me in the inner man. Strengthen me according to your glorious might. I have found myself on my face in utter dismay over my own sin and inability to change, pleading with God to do that. And I think, I think that's pleasing to the Lord because Paul is praying that exact thing for the believers in Colossae. Now, let me just say, when we get together and pray, so often Christians' prayers are, heal this person, provide a job for this person, all good and right to pray for, but very, very, very small things, very small in comparison to the spiritual power that Paul would have us pray for. You know, this is a model prayer. If if you want to grow in your prayer life, if you want to grow in understanding how we should pray, pray what Paul prays here. Take these same words and pray them. Make them yours. Hide them in your heart. Know that God wants you to pray for big things. God wants you to pray that you'll be strengthened in the inner person for all patience and long-suffering with joy. Paul wants you to pray large prayers for great power for yourself and for others. Pray that for one another. What would, how vibrant, how vibrant our church would be if we prayed this for one another? Because God would answer this prayer. God delights to answer the prayers that he puts in the scriptures. He puts them in there so that we would pray them, so that we would seek them. Well, thirdly, notice that Paul prays not just for power, not just for knowledge, but he prays for more patience and joy in the midst of afflictions. Clearly, the Colossians had been afflicted. They were a uh, congregation that had given up everything, as all first century Christians had. And one of the things, one of the costs of following Jesus Christ, especially in that day, is that you would suffer. You would certainly suffer if you followed Christ. There were no country club churches. There were no social club churches. There There was true Christianity that meant giving up everything as it were, to be a disciple of Jesus. If you, in the days of the Roman Empire under Caesar, confess that Jesus is Lord, confess that he is Savior, you would suffer. And so Paul is praying that in the midst of their suffering, notice this, he says that they would be strengthened according to God's glorious power for all endurance and patience with joy. I remember in seminary a girl from New Zealand, her dad had serious back problems. And he was an elder in a church in New Zealand. And I'll never forget the testimony of the people that had met her father. He was in excruciating pain. He probably would be for the rest of his life. And everyone that knew him said he is the most joyful person I've ever met. Now, I knew enough as a young seminarian. I knew enough from getting sick and being miserable and grumpy, being ornery when I was sick, I knew enough to know there was something supernatural in that man. I'd never met him. I didn't know who he was, but from the testimony about him, I knew God had done something supernatural in him. And the thing that God had done was God had given him joy in the midst 
of the affliction. He had not taken away the pain. He had not chosen to heal that man. He had given him joy in the midst of affliction. Notice Paul doesn't pray that God take away their sufferings. Paul doesn't pray that God make their life easy. Paul doesn't pray that they have financial security and that they have just a good, happy, upper-middle-class American life. He didn't pray that. He prayed that God would give them endurance and patience with joy, that they would endure in the midst of their sufferings. And just like my friend's father, that was a witness to the gospel. And while he endured much hardship... Jesus got much joy because we knew that God was doing something supernatural in that man and God was getting glory. God was being glorified in the midst of that man's sufferings. That, that's true in the, most, in, in the most climactic way in the life of Jesus, isn't it? Jesus didn't avoid suffering. Jesus went through the most horrific suffering at the hands of men and demons and his heavenly father. And he endured, and the writer of Hebrews said that he endured the cross for the joy set before him. That he did it with joy, though he shuddered back at the thought of losing fellowship with his father in the garden when he looked at that cup and the broken fellowship he would there have to endure bearing the wrath of God for our sins. He endured with joy because he knew what his suffering would accomplish, your redemption. And Jesus went through that suffering with joy, and he endured to the end and he overcame and all true believers overcome with him and so Paul says Paul says that he prays that they might have all endurance and patience with joy finally in verse 12 through 14 he tells us that he prayed to God for more thankfulness for what Christ has accomplished for us notice that Paul in all of this could could be badly misunderstood. He could, you could read this in a way of thinking, well, if I do all these things, especially when Paul says that you may walk worthy of the manner of the Lord, that you may walk in a worthy manner of the Lord, you could very easily twist that and think, well, if I walk worthy enough, then the Lord will receive me. There are many Christians who have done that. There are many pastors who preach that. If you follow Jesus enough, if you obey Christ enough, if you trust him and are baptized and do good enough, then God will accept you. But notice, notice what Paul says in verse 12. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption to his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Paul now roots all of this in the gospel. He says his last prayer here, as he closes out his prayer, his prayer is that we would thank God for what he has done for us in Christ. That at the heart of all of it, all of the prayers related to one another, logically connected to one another, all of them are built into what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. It's the grounds. It's the basis. It is the foundation. If we, if we miss that, none of those other petitions actually matter. If we miss this, none of those other petitions actually matter. Paul prays that they would thank the Father who has qualified them to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. I asked our Sunday school group this morning, what do you have to do to get an inheritance? What do you have to do to get an inheritance? It was the question the rich and ruler asked Jesus. Lord, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And the irony of the question is you don't do anything to inherit something. An inheritance is yours by right. 
not anything you do to get an inheritance. The rich and ruler was trusting in what he did, thinking somehow God would give that. Paul says God has qualified you. He has made you fit to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light. He has set you apart. He has called you out of darkness. He has delivered you. I, I want us to think for just a moment, as, as we grow, as we grow in our Christian life, there's a tendency to forget what we were. There's a tendency to forget what we were. And what Paul does is he says, in a sense, remember that you walked in darkness. Remember that you were under bondage to Satan. Remember what you were because it was God transferring you, delivering you, redeeming you from darkness into light, putting you into his beloved son, loving you as he loves Jesus. Listen, when he says, when he says there that he has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, he is saying that you in him are beloved sons and daughters. Jesus, in his final prayer before he went to the cross, he prayed that you would know that the disciples, that you who the Father has given to him, would know that he loves you even as the Father loved the Son. I want you to think about that. God the Father loves God the Son infinitely. The Father loves the Son for who the Son is. He loves him with infinite, eternal, perfect love. And in him, as we've been transferred from darkness to light, Jesus said that the Father loves you loves you as he loved the Son. That's almost unthinkable. People talk about the love of God all the time. They talk about what God has done all the time without actually thinking about what's being said, that the infinite God would love you with an infinite love the way he loves his infinite Son when we are infinitely undeserving of that love. And notice, we are now heirs. We are now under the kingship of the beloved Son. And notice what Paul says that we are to be thankful for finally in verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That's the greatest thing. The greatest thing, the forgiveness of sins. The greatest thing God could ever do is forgive your sins. It's more important than knowledge. It's more important than power. It's more important than joy if I can say that reverently with this text in front of us. More important than knowledge. More important then power, more important than joy, is that you have your sins forgiven and that we are thankful for sins forgiven and that we know that sins are forgiven. Maybe you're here this morning and you don't know that. Maybe you've never had your sins forgiven. Maybe you're not trusting Jesus. That, that, that is the biggest thing the Apostle Paul would have you know, is that there is sin forgiven in the beloved Son redemption by God's grace and inheritance laid up for the saints. We are made partakers. We grow spiritually in him. And I'll just say this as I close. This is a prayer for more. It's a prayer for growth. It's a prayer for filling. I pray this for you. I've been praying for this for you for this past week. I pray this for you often. I will continue to pray this for this congregation that we are a congregation that grows in the knowledge of the Lord. That we grow being strengthened by His glorious power for all patience and long-suffering with joy. That God would pour out such a blessing on your souls, in your homes, in your lives, that you would see the gospel at work 
bearing fruit since the day you first heard and knew the grace of God and truth. Let him who has ears to hear this morning, let him hear what the Spirit has said to the church. Let's pray. Father, we desperately need to grow. We want to be filled with the knowledge of your will. We want to walk worthy of you, Lord, and the calling to which you've called us. We want to know the power that is ours in Christ Jesus. We want to have joy and patience in affliction. But Father, we come especially to thank you for delivering us, for redeeming us, for forgiving our sins, for transferring us from the bondage we were in to Satan and to the world and to the kingdom of darkness and bringing us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, we thank you that you have done all this for us by grace, that you have done this because it was pleasing to you to do so. We thank you that you are not finished with us, that you continue working. We do pray that you would hear this prayer of the Apostle Paul this morning and that you would answer it in the souls and the lives of each one present here. Father, we pray that we would be a people ever seeking fullness in Christ Jesus. We pray these things in his name and for his name's sake. Amen.